Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association. I'm Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 4th of June 2018 and this is episode number 66. On today's programme, I talked to author Kenneth C. Davis about his latest book on the hidden history of the Spanish flu during the First World War. This book is published by Henry Holt and was released last month. I spoke to Kenneth over the interweb from his home in the US of A. Kenneth, welcome to the podcast. To start the interview, why did you write your book? The reason that I decided to write about the Spanish flu and World War I together was the fact that I write and have spent most of my career writing about the stories that school books and the history books leave out, what I call hidden history. And I don't think there's a better example of hidden history, certainly in American history, than the story of the Spanish flu, which was really left out of school books and medical books and textbooks, but it's also a story that's left out of the World War I histories to a large degree. Uh, I've read many histories of World War I, and sometimes you get a mention of the flu, a paragraph, a line here or there. But as I read and studied this subject more carefully, the 100th anniversary of these twin events in 1918, I became more aware of the fact that this was one of the most important untold stories that we know, that in the midst of this terrible fighting on the trenches of France and Belgium 100 years ago, hundreds of thousands and eventually tens of millions of people died from a pandemic, a disease that was truly more deadly than war. So A very odd question, but why is a flu known as the Spanish flu? Very simple question, and it is uh, an indirect outcome of the war, in fact. Spain, of course, was a neutral nation during the war. And because it was neutral, it did not censor its newspapers as most of the other combatant uh, nations did. So uh, in, in Great Britain or America and certainly in Germany and France, the news of this epidemic was kept under wrap. The governments did not want to create panic, first of all. They did not want to uh, let the enemy know they had we- uh, been weakened. And in some cases, they wanted to prevent people from knowing how bad things were from a morale uh, point of view. So it was the, the Spanish were the first to actually publish the fact that they were being hit by a very bad epidemic and that it was our origins were unknown. Uh, in fact, the Spanish king was sick and at a certain point they had shut down the streetcar system in Madrid because so many people were sick. And the first report came out, it was actually a, a Reuters wire uh, that went to London saying uh, Spain was being hit by this uh, t- tremendous epidemic. And so very shortly after that, that was in May of 1918, just exactly about 100 years ago uh, from where we're speaking today, that that name then got attached to this virus, which had been going around and had been known by names such as the three-day flu or Flanders flu after, the, of course, the the famous battlefield. The interesting thing is that's what it was known in in most of the English-speaking world. When you went to other parts of the of the world, and this was a global pandemic, you heard things like in Russia it was the German pest or the Bolshevik pest. 
In Japan, it was called the wrestler's fever. In South Africa, they called it the black disease or the white disease, depending on which side of that racial fence you were living on. Uh, so uh, even the Spanish called it the Naples soldier, not so much because they were blaming Naples, but because there was a very popular song in a musical in Madrid at that time. And so that name got attached to it. But it's really the name, the Spanish flu, that stuck in the English-speaking world. And even today, that's how it's most widely recognized. So how long did the pandemic last? And then why did it vanish? Well, it came in waves, first of all. So we have to discuss the first wave came uh, in the United States. It was really recognized as uh, beginning in the early months of 1918 and then really starting to grow into a conflagration, a, a bad situation in March of 1918 when it hit some of the American training bases. And I should uh, tell your listeners that the United States, of course, did not join World War I, the Great War, until April of 1917. And the United States was spectacularly unprepared for war at that time. So it took nearly a year to ramp up the camps, the training camps, the cantonments, as they were called. And they were all over the country with uh, 50,000 men jammed into uh, barracks, hastily constructed barracks, sometimes in tents. And so this first wave was in the, uh, in the U.S. at least, in these army camps, and it spread very quickly from one camp to the next. Those men then, of course, were put onto crowded trains, taking them to crowded troop transports, and then eventually brought to uh, Europe in the spring of 1918. And by May of 1918, one million doughboys, as they were known, uh, had landed in France. And there's no, connect there's no question that right after that, the flu really exploded. Uh, on Europe, touching every uh, nation on the continent. It went into a bit of a lull. And in fact, uh, the British army said, well, it seems, the, seems like the worst is over, typical of a flu season. But then in uh, the late summer and early fall of uh, 1918, it came back with a vengeance. Uh, it had mutated perhaps, and once again, spreading from army bases into the civilian population. And this is where it went into the really virulent, violent, and most lethal phase in the fall of 1918. Of course, just as the last months of fighting are taking place, this dreadful epidemic is now sweeping across the world. Troops carried it, then it would be on board ships. And as those ships went to places like Bombay, modern Mumbai, or South Africa, or Odessa, to all these deep water ports, clearly the flu was moving on these uh, troop transports and supply ships that were going around the world. And there was no corner of the globe, no spot on the globe, essentially, that was untouched by the flu. It continued right into the uh, winter and early spring of 1919, and then gradually, gradually petered out. The suggestion is that uh, it used up all the available fuel. We're, we're, uh, we're talking about nearly 100 million people, the estimates are now, that uh, were, were killed worldwide by the flu. This is, of course, on top of the casualties of the war, tens and 20 million uh, civilians and soldiers. 
do we know where the pandemic actually started? And I suppose another question connected to that is, why did it start? Well, we don't know precisely. Uh, we do know uh, now, and uh, it's frightening to think, but it, it's, it is scientific fact that the gene was reconstituted. They were able to find live virus and uh, actually recreate this uh, uh, Spanish flu virus, which is now known to be an avian virus, bird flu, as uh, some people might call it. So we don't know where precisely originated. Most likely it was in bird, Asian bird, and somehow made the leap from bird to human. And that's, uh, we're always on the watch for these uh, diseases that make that leap from the animal population into the human population. Was it from someone ingesting uh, a tainted bird? Was it from someone getting bitten by a, a, a bird that was carrying the virus? No one knows the answer to that, nor do we actually know how it went from possibly from Asia. Of course, these could be migratory birds that just made their way to North, North America. Or did it start in Asia, perhaps, and was carried uh, to the United States and North America and eventually Europe? Uh, one suggestion is Chinese laborers who were uh, used in mass numbers to dig trenches in the, the, the battlefields in, in Belgium and France. There were a large number of these Chinese workers who were brought to the west coast of Canada taken across Canada by train, again, crowded into trains, a, a breeding ground for a virus, and then eventually taken to Europe where they were uh, digging trenches and building latrines, doing the, the, uh, the dirty work, so to speak, behind the lines. There's a suggestion that these Chinese laborers may have been the original source of the Spanish flu coming into North America and then into Europe. So you say the Spanish flu has been hidden from history. What exactly do you mean and why do you think this? And I suppose a connected issue as well, that also the First World War could be seen as something which is largely hidden from the American populace, despite their significant contribution during the conflict. Uh, absolutely. I, I think that uh, to the second part first, I suppose, we've tended to concentrate a bit more on World War II history in this country, as well as our American Civil War. When we teach wars, those are the two kind of, uh, and, uh, as well as the American Revolution. I, I, I hate to raise that, that unpleasantness with, with you, but um, th these, are, these are the three wars that most Americans have some familiarity with. The American Revolution, War for Independence, then our great civil war from 1861 to 1865, and then World War II, the Second World War, and then uh, in 19 for us from 1941 on. I think that in part the uh, history of World War One, in in essence, it's so long ago for many Americans, it doesn't seem to be something that really has an impact uh, on us, and that's of course terribly wrong. But I think that's that's the general consensus. The Spanish flu was really hidden for a different reason, I believe, and, and many other writers have spoken about this, that the memory of this, because it was actually such a deep trauma for people in this country in particular, uh, people wanted, did not want to think about it, talk about it, record it, or discuss it at all. Even those men who were the researchers, the doctors, the medical people 
who were involved with trying to track down this killer and and do something about it, largely unsuccessful, uh, did not talk about it afterwards. You know, I've comp- I've heard from so many people as I talk about this book, More Deadly Than War, that their grandmothers uh, told stories about their mother dying or their father dying, but nobody really said too much about it. They just say, oh, yes, they died from the flu back in 1918. You know, sometimes as families, we leave the bad parts out. And this was the bad part for the American family to have left out. It was also, of course, this time of the the twin catastrophes uh, of the Spanish flu and World War I. It was such a terrible time that Americans, in a very, very meaningful way, retreated back into the island mentality. We're going to shut our walls. We're going to uh, close down our borders. We're not going to have anything to do with Europe. It's too dangerous when we get involved with them. It's either their wars or their diseases come into us. So there was that real moment of isolationism and fear of foreigners. Once again, the fear of immigrants, certainly a, a, a theme that is playing out in our country today again, that really affected the United States after the war and after the Spanish flu. It took nearly 50 years before a researcher who was curious about why the United States mortality level had gone down, actually the life expectancy level had gone down in 1918. He thought it couldn't be just the war. Uh, there weren't enough deaths to, uh, to affect the uh, life expectancy. But there was this sharp drop in 1918. And as this researcher went back and started to look and look at the newspapers, more and more stories about the, the flu came about. And as time went by, the estimates of the numbers went higher and higher and higher. In the United States now, we use the number generally of around 675,000 Americans died of the Spanish flu in a little more than a year's time. Just for some perspective, that is more than all the Americans who died fighting in the wars of World War I, World War II, the Korean War, and Vietnam. Uh, Another perspective, uh, it's more uh, about the same number, I should say, as the number of AIDS, HIV deaths over 30 years. So that's a, a, a figure, I think, that's very stunning to many people because we think about AIDS as being such a, a deadly, lethal thing. But this flu killed many, many more people in a short amount of time. So if I contracted the flu, what would be my symptoms? And the other other thing that came across in your book was that the strange fact that certainly fitter, younger people seem to die at a higher rate than the very old, frail and very, very young. Many doctors noticed this right away from the even before the flu started to spread to the degree that it did, that it was, first of all, extremely virulent. It struck with a degree of suddenness and violence that was very unusual for the flu. Look, the flu has been around for many centuries. Hippocrates writes about flu symptoms 2,400 years ago, and he even talks about the seasonality of it. The word influenza itself comes from an Italian uh, word, which means the influence of the heavens, meaning uh, this does seem to come from the stars and the seasons as opposed to something else. So this is an idea that's been around for a long time. Of course, in 1918, they didn't understand a virus. Bacteria had been identified. Bacteria had been understood. There were uh, certain remedies for some bacterial diseases. 
but viruses were not seen because they were too small. So that was part of it. They didn't really understand what they were dealing with. But this flu, or the grip, as it was sometimes called, or Qatar, struck suddenly, violently, and as you mentioned, did seem to strike younger people much more than the flu does typically. We think of flu season being dangerous to the very elderly or the very young, infants and small children. This was killing 20-year-olds and, uh, and 40-year-olds who should have been able to shake off a bout of the flu. Now, there are some, this is one of those questions that doesn't really have a perfect answer yet. There are some theories, one of which being that the mutation of this virus struck people in such a way that their immune systems responded so powerfully, and the younger and healthier you were, the more improved or the better your immune system would have been. Those immune systems kicked in so powerfully that they actually are the agent that killed these people. Your immune system, of course, sends fluid to your lungs to try and rid, rid them of, of a virus. People's lungs filled up with fluids. The stories are rather ghastly and so, certainly striking of young men being well one day and getting sick and within hours being on, flat on their back, turning blue because they couldn't get oxygen into their lungs, blood sometimes streaming from their eyes and nostrils, and then dying very, in a short amount of time after turning blue. A, a, a condition called kyanosis, um, which means the lungs aren't getting enough air. Uh, so before that was called the Spanish flu, many people actually called it the purple death because so many people who are dying were turning blue. In fact, there's a doctor in, in New York at Bellevue Hospital who reports that he's seeing thousands of people coming in and he says they're spitting blood and blue as huckleberries, well, another word for blueberries. And uh, it's, a, it's a rather s astonishing image and really made people fear that this was something they had never seen and certainly didn't understand. And when we look at back at 1918, we often regard the, the flu and also the First World War as two independent events, but also they, they're very much connected. What impact did the war have on the flu? And then vice versa, what impact did the flu have on the war. Well, as I mentioned earlier, it's clear that the arrival of the million uh, uh, American servicemen in the trenches added to the growing problem of the flu. And it may have come in independent of them in other places, uh, but it's really the arrival of those men who are clearly carrying this virus that sets the fuse off in such an extraordinary way. So the massive movement of troops is one thing. Obviously, that, that's what the war meant. You also had people obviously crowded in trenches, crowded in, uh, in barracks, in, in close quarters. Viruses love crowds. They love, love it when people are in close quarters. Field hospitals, of course, were jammed with men uh, suffering battlefield wounds, but of course, they were soon coming in with fluke-like conditions. So the war created the kind of perfect breeding ground for this disaster. And then you had, obviously, people malnourished. You have a shortage of medical personnel because so many doctors and nurses are being pulled to the front. So all of this was the perfect storm for the creation of, of a worldwide pandemic. And it came especially because this particular virus was so lethal 
and so virulent. The war also factors in in other ways. Clearly at a certain point in the United States in the fall when the second wave came and it was becoming so apparent that the, the army couldn't handle this within these camps, the, the man in charge of the draft, the conscription in the United States, actually canceled the draft two months running in October and then November, which was extraordinary. But they did ask General Pershing, who was the commander of the American Expeditionary Force, to stop bringing troops over. He and President Woodrow Wilson uh, would not agree to that. So they kept bringing men who were clearly infected by the hundreds of thousands because they knew, certainly by the early fall of 1918, that the Germans were ready to be pushed over and they didn't want to uh, let up on the pressure. But as one historian put it, the, the troop ships bringing those men over were floating caskets. It's uh, rather grim image. So when we look back on this amazing period in history, what does it teach us today? Well, it teaches us a lot of lessons. Um, and one relates to what I just said. We, we can't make good political or military judgments that are absent sound medical and scientific advice. And unfortunately, we do that all the time, especially in a time when uh, a lot of basic science is coming into question. And we have people uh, questioning the veracity or effectiveness of vaccines. This is beyond, uh, of course, there are flu vaccines that are uh, viewed with skepticism by some people, certainly in the United States, but other vaccines and other issues of science are coming into question in this era of, uh, as we call it here in the United States, fake news, conspiracy theories. And uh, so that's one danger. We have not only in in the United States, but around the world because of the World Health Organization and other international uh, medical associations, we have put some guardrails in place that will prevent outbreaks like this. But when governments start to do things that weaken those guardrails, it puts many, many millions of people at risk. So we have to be very cognizant of that. Certainly the war and crisis situations worsen the possibility for outbreaks. And we know that uh, there are war situations and crisis zones all over the world right now uh, where disease can be as uh, lethal as anything that's unleashed by a, a tank or a, or a bomber plane. So that's another lesson of, of the Spanish flu in World War I, that conflict worsens these situations. There's another aspect, at least in the United States, that was true early on, and I think that factors in here as well, is that um, propaganda played a role in the fear that was created when the flu first hit, because many, many people believed that in part because information was being suppressed by the government, which is another, another lesson here. It's not good to suppress information. But people thought that in the United States that the Germans were responsible at first, that this was some new chemical war, that a warfare that they were creating. This was, of course, the era of the first use of gas on the battlefield. And so the image of the Germans as the barbaric Huns, the people who bayoneted babies on the, on the tips of their bayonets, played into the fears here. It was actually a widespread belief that perhaps this was a, a plot by the Bayer Company, a German drug company that had been responsible for producing aspirin, one of the great miracle drugs of the 20th century. People were wondering if the Germans were actually tainting the aspirin. Uh, Bayer actually took out advertisements in the United States at this time 
saying Bayer is made in America by Americans on the banks of the Hudson River. So it was quite a, quite extraordinary. And you know that, I think, is an important lesson, too, when we let our fears and propaganda play into sound judgment it always creates a more dangerous situation. And finally, Kenneth, your, your book's published by Henry Holt. Where can people get hold of it? Uh, the book is available here in the United States at, uh, at all of our online booksellers. Uh, I have a website, don'tknowmuch.com, uh, where I provide links to that. I don't sell the book myself, but I provide links to the booksellers who can provide this book. And just one other uh, uh, important story, we talk about the impact of, of this history. Of course, when you lose uh, tens and perhaps 100 million people, you're losing talent and ability and uh, the possibilities that those people create. And I think that uh, the two stories that I tell in the, in the book speak to that very clearly. And they're stories of actually men who survived the flu very narrowly. Uh, one of them was an undersecretary of the Navy in the United States, and he got sick in America, in Europe. He had been touring the French lines, and he was making his way back to the United States on a, a very famous ship called Leviathan, uh, a captured German passenger ship that had been uh, uh, converted into a troop carrier. That man was deathly sick when he got into New York Harbor. They took him to his mother's apartment and he recuperated. His name is Franklin D. Roosevelt. How would history have changed if Franklin D. Roosevelt had not recovered from the Spanish flu? The other story is of a young man, about 16 years old, who was desperate to enlist in the summer of 1918 because he saw all these posters that said, I want you, and Navy posters with beautiful women beckoning uh, men to come and enlist in the Navy. And he was desperate to get into a uniform, but he was too young. He learned that he could join the Red Cross Ambulance Service. And of course, most famously, Ernest Hemingway had joined the ambulance service and uh, gone to Italy where he was wounded and wrote, of course, his, his World War I stories. Uh, this young man got very, very sick before he went to Europe. His mother nursed him back to health. His name is Walt Disney. So again, imagine how history might have changed if the Spanish flu had taken uh, Walt Disney and or Franklin D. Roosevelt, among many, many others. Kenneth, that's fantastic. Thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks for having me. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>